0: six degrees of benjamin harrison welcome to part two of a special edition of six degrees of benjamin harrison a podcast of the benjamin harrison presidential site elements of this episode related to crime scene descriptions and self-harm may be disturbing for younger listeners i'm your host molly History Student and Russell and Penny Fortune, Project POTUS Presidential Fellow at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site, located in Indianapolis, Indiana. In the first part of this segment on the Cold Spring Murders of 1868, Benjamin Harrison and Nancy Clem, who as a woman was a curious suspect for such a grisly crime, we introduced the circumstances of the deaths of Jacob and Nancy Jane Young, who were shot and killed when they were out for a midday buggy ride in the area known as Cold Spring along the bank of the White River, just north of the city neighborhoods of Indianapolis, sometime on September 12th, 1868, and discovered the next day to be dead. The suspects in the case were Bill Abrams, Silas Hartman, and Nancy Clem, all of whom were found to have been linked to Jacob Young as potential money scheme associates by suspicious bank records and transactions, which pointed to the existence of what today might be called a Ponzi scheme. A gun purchased by Abrams just days before the murder was, was found at the scene, which led him to be the first arrested, followed next by Silas Hartman and his sister, Nancy Clem. The case garnered national attention, not only because the murders were so grisly, but also because one of the main suspects was a woman. To share their own takes on the criminal case and the confusion and intrigue surrounding the suspects, particularly Nancy Clem, Donna Wing and Jim Troffeter are with us once more. Jim is the resident playwright for Candlelight Theater, which has been partnering with the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site over 18 years to stage immersive theater experiences in the historic mansion of the 23rd President. Donna Wing is Candlelight's creative director and has played the very woman we discussed today on numerous occasions, bringing to life Jim's play, which brings to life the trial of Nancy Clem for audience members to decide for themselves what they believe about the guilt or innocence of Nancy Clem. The play will return to the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site this summer in honor of the city's bicentennial, and tickets are available now on presidentbenjaminharrison.org. Also rejoining the conversation is Charlie Hyde, the president and CEO of the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site. Allow us to present to you the case of Nancy Clem with a new perspective so that you too can decide for yourself what really happened in September 1868 at Cold Springs. Here's Charlie. Charlie
1: you know, partnering with Candlelight Theater and the Benjamin Harrison presidential site, partnering over a number of years and sharing this story um, through performance. Um, Donna, Jim, how, how have your perspectives changed on this case over time?
2: Uh, yeah, I guess I can, I mean, I really don't think, one, that she actually shot anybody. Okay, so Nancy, I don't think was involved in a shooting. I think at some level she was involved in a conspiracy and may have taken the fall for someone else. With the same idea that they would never hang a woman in Indiana so that she might serve some time, but in the long run, it would benefit her, whoever she was working with. But I don't think she ever, she never shot anyone. Now, her brother may have, I don't know, but I don't think she was. And I think that's part of the issue. I think that for her handling the shotgun that they had, there probably would have knocked her over. She wasn't a big woman. Um, The shotgun probably would have knocked her back. And I don't think she would have had the aim to actually hit Jacob in the head the way he was hit. Now, her brother was a big man. So her brother could handle not a pistol. Who knows who shot, you know, Nancy, the, Nancy Jane. So I'm not sure she was actually involved in killing it, killing the killing. But I think she was involved somehow in everything that transpired around the killing.
3: I I would agree with that when um, in response to how my opinion has changed my views. I didn't know who Nancy Clem was until like 2000 and five or so when I was at the site, we were performing, uh, getting ready to perform or debriefing the uh, fall play, which we had finished. And I was looking for something different to do because we were doing the same play every year. And uh, Phyllis Geisland, the the then um, executive director, suggested Cold Spring and she had some material and so I read this. It was very interesting. I got with uh, Jim. He wrote a script. It was just a very light. When I say light, I don't mean light humorous, but light in the sense that it was not it did not delve real deeply into the case. It was a, an hour and 10 minute performance where the visitors would go through different rooms of the home and hear testimony and they would deliberate as a jury because this is an unsolved crime. And um, there were two of us playing Nancy Clem. The other one, uh, Jill, way, uh, I'm sorry, Jill Morrell, um Jim's uh, wife. And um, we had some fun with it in that I played her a little bit more evil and Jill played her a little bit more light. And then we had kind of a way of looking at, well, how many times I was found guilty more than Jill was. But mostly it was a hung jury because there are so many questions. So when I read the little bit of... of I material I could find at the time was that she was tried. It was believed she was the murderer. And I just took her as um, the villain from this time period from um, as the person who indeed um, killed Nancy Jane Young. I just took that at face value. Just like if someone asked me to play Lizzie Borden or, you know, um, or Mary Surratt, you don't, you know, you just do it without a really, um, thinking that, um, well, maybe this person wasn't guilty because so much of the literature said she was. So as, as we d- uh, refined the performance and then start performing it every two to three years, Jim would present more information and we would look and, and I started getting more and more interested. And at one day I just sat back and thought, wow, I've been doing an injustice to this woman. I have been making an assumption on a case that really is unsolved. And I don't think that she murdered Nancy Jane Young. And I'll just set it up just kind of very simply for you. Just imagine, like Jim said, this was supposed to be very well executed and planned for weeks. So somebody is going to, for weeks, plan a crime, to murder two people at a highly trafficked site on a Saturday afternoon on a certain day in the future when you don't even know if people are gonna be there, because in a moment I'll explain that further. You don't even know that that your intended victims will be there and you're going to leave a very discreet murder weapon. And on that day, you're gonna arrange for your house to be wallpapered. You know, that doesn't make any sense. If we look, uh, it does in a different scenario. But in the scenario that Nancy Clem um, murdered went out to Cold Spring and was involved in the murder of the Youngs, that doesn't make any sense. So uh, you know, so let's take a few of these details. Okay, Cold Spring on a Saturday afternoon in September. That's like going to Central Park, in a way, for Indianapolis. You're going to have people around. So why do you do this very detailed plan of a murder at a public location? And as testified by Mary Bell Young, who was the niece of the Youngs, and Lizzie Henry, who was their domestic, and they testified to the fact that on that Saturday in question, after dinner, which is what was referred to as the noonday meal, there was a discussion by the Youngs as to what to do. And um, Nancy Jane suggested that they go out for a ride. And then they talked about where they would go. And if they would go, because there was rain, it looked like rain. And at the last minute, they decided to go to Cold Spring and bring an umbrella. Now, it doesn't sound like there was any plan to meet anybody there or anything arranged for weeks, according to this testimony. That was not discussed very much, you know, by the by the defense. That discrepancy. So we don't even have a meeting planned. Um, you know, they're supposedly planning this on the on the chance that at uh, three four o'clock that afternoon the Young's might be out of cold spring. And then the shotgun. And in addition to what um, Jim said about the description of the shotgun, the person who bought it went to ser- several different stores, shops, gun shops, made a, his presence known by looking at things, arguing things. Then when he finally bought the gun from at Solomon's gun shop, he paid more, he bought a gun that had damage to it and paid more than the gun would have it normally sold for. Again, bringing attention to himself. And why do you do that if you're planning to kill somebody, murder someone in a few hours, you don't even have the weapon yet and you're letting everyone know and then you leave it there. So those items did not make you know any sense at all. Um, the... Other thing about the span of time. Okay, that morning, Nancy Clem arranges to have her house wallpapered. So you're going to go out and murder somebody and you're going to have people in wallpaper in your house who can then testify that you weren't around. So they kind of did that because there was a span of time they couldn't find her, but her presence was accounted for for that span of time. So for example, at 1.15 on that afternoon, witnesses saw a woman... Who looked like Nancy Clem, even though the description, the dress she was wearing was a dark color dress, where others um, who saw Clem on that day said she was wearing a calico dress. There's a difference there in the description. But they said at 1.15 a woman entered the um, uh, buggy with the young's that they seemed to meet her uh, coming uh, by the state house, that they saw her there and she went into the buggy. Okay. At 2:30, Nancy Clem is seen by a passerby at her window of her house talking across to a neighbor. Okay, that same person on the return at 3.30 also saw her there. At four o'clock, a neighbor who knew Mrs. Clem well saw her holding a broom standing in her doorway. At 4.15, a man there was a delivery man, I can't recall what he delivered, but he knew Mrs. Clem and he saw her at 4.15. And from 3.30 to a little bit before 4, she was talking with someone who knew her at the New York, um, New York store in the hosiery department. So we have her cited by people who could recognize her at 2.30, again at 3.30 at her home, from 3.30 to almost 4 at a store, 4 o'clock and 4.15 at home. And this murder took place at 4.00.
1: Well, and, and and hold on for a second, Donna. I'll, I'll just say as you as you share this information, I mean, it sounds all the world like um, a masterful um, like Sherlock Holmes tale. You can you can see why people get drawn into this story because there's just such rich detail, and you wonder, you know, how, how was there not either a hard conviction or a hard acquittal with all this like
2: immensity of information? Right, and and this is where it comes this is where I come down is if you did these things. Close to that day, people will associate with that day because oh yeah she was oh yeah uh, I, yeah I remember seeing her at three o'clock uh, yeah yeah I think it was that day and so this is what you know some of it is again this confusion of when, when really did they see her but because they wanted to see her that day they did see her that day and but but the thing is so things seem like Donna said very well orchestrated right? The gun, I mean, going in and making a real big show of buying the gun. Mm -hmm. So you really place it with a human being. Okay. It looks like somehow or other they were meant to be set up, be set up that way. (laughs) Uh, And it may very well be that they were set up that way Um, that someone set them up so that they would take the fall, even though they were elsewhere. So that's the confusion here. Um, Let's talk about the confession, Jim,
3: because there was a confession. And we can, you know, kind of dissect this a little bit. Um, so her brother, Silas Hartman, known as Syke, uh, was in prison and, and evidently wrote a confession and then was found dead, cut his own throat, okay? And what he said is that a woman by the name of Frank Clark, Francis Frankie, Frank Clark, um, was a decoy. Frank Clark looked like Nancy Clem. And Frank Clark uh, was to decoy the Youngs out to Cold Spring. Okay, so that was step one. There at Cold Spring, William Fiscus, another business um, associate in in some form, who was involved with this, whatever they were doing, um, killed Jacob Young. Um, And he killed Jacob Young uh, with the gun that Abrams had bought for him on his behalf. So evidently, he had asked Abrams to go and find this particular gun and um, and give it to him. Now, I don't know why then Abrams didn't say that in his defense. But um, I think a lot of people were afraid to talk about various things. But Viskus evidently, according to the confession, killed Young. He did not intend to kill uh, Nancy Jane. Um but something happened, and, and she was she was um, also killed. Then Silas, um, this is again psych. Uh, Silas Hartman, Nancy Clum's brother, was um, told, or he was involved. He admitted he was involved. He was to drive Frank Clark back to um, town, and then um, on the Thursday after the murders. Um, Nancy Clem was approached uh, by Fiscus um, to retain some notes that she had uh, that would have implicated him. And she was threatened that she would be pulled into this murder if she, did, if she talked. So my feeling is and I think from what you pre- have said previously, Jim, uh, very consistent, is that I think Na- Nancy Clem was involved in so many illicit behaviors and financial dealings. I mean, we know later she was arrested for posing you know, as a position, so green, but you know, killed a patient. I mean, she was not you know, uh, innocent here. But as far as being at Cold Spring and pulling a trigger, I think she knew something. I think she knew what was coming down. I think she knew something was being planned. And as far as doing things like arranging for your house to be wallpapered, as far as um, multiple people seeing her, um, as far as um, um, you know, all of these witnesses go, I think she was trying very hard to make herself seen. In places like, if someone told me that I might be implicated on a murder on a certain day, one of the things I would do is say, "Oh, I'm having the Zoom call with Charlie and Molly. Uh, <laughs> and, you saying and they, no, we can see the, you know, the time that you know we planned it for this time. So I'm here, and you, and you can, you yeah. know, so I think that she knew something." And she wanted to, and maybe that's why she asked for her house to be wallpapered on that day. That seemed like a very, very strange
4: thing. Well, or if, you're, uh, if you're Bill Abrams, you can tell the the police and everyone that you were peeling peaches all day. Am I right? Is that, isn't that what yeah, you're something like that, yeah. yeah. Well, and exactly. I, I,
1: was, I was struck by, um I was reading back over some of the details and um, the first prosecutor, I think in a moment of peak, uh, described Nancy Clem as self-reliant, but God defiant. <laughs> so, I mean, there, I think there was this, like, she had this outsized personality. I mean, a lot of people seem to admire her or fear her or just be mystified by her, that she, she seemed to hold some unknown power over others.
3: What's well, so interesting, when uh, um, in regard to what you just said, Tori, when Jill and I played uh, Nancy um, early on, we decided that Jill was gonna play her very sweet and innocent and I was gonna play her more defiant and um, you know, as, a, as a stronger personality. And it was so interesting how our audiences, um, even though um, many of the, um, uh, the juries were hung, uh, that the ones who found uh, Nancy Clem guilty found her guilty when I played the part and those who found her not guilty when Jill did because just of the way, and it was so interesting even today, you know, the fact that the facts are the same, the script's the same, but I just played her very defiant, and Joe played her, you know, right, teary-eyed, and that made a difference.
2: And just recognize that Nancy Jane Young was collateral damage, or as, at least from what I had read, that Jacob had planned to go out, and then she asked to go out with him. So she really wasn't, I don't think, supposed to be with him that day. Um, So if if, um, she just happened, you know, happened to be, so she, she unfortunately got killed because, and unfortunately her death was horrible. Mm -hmm. And this is what, this is what really got people upset. I mean, what happened was somehow or other a spark from the gun. So she must've been shot very close range with a little short, a low caliber pistol and a spark lit her undergarments on fire, but just smoldering. And so people had seen a couple next to the, uh, lying on the bank with a small fire going. They thought they'd had us fired on, but it was her dress slowly burning.
4: Which, as I understand it, unfortunately, the crinoline that women wore those days was very flammable, and even standing next to sources of heat could, right. um, but could have, have this happen. So very. But sad. this,
2: unfo- yeah, but this unfortunately um, didn't actually burst into flames. It just sort of slow cooked her overnight, and so her body was grossly, de- you know, destroyed. Um, so the, the, it was the, gris- the thing is, though, they think that she didn't, wasn't even dead by the time when this had started. So they shot her, but they didn't think she had died immediately. So this, to them, this was horrible and grisly to think that this woman may have been burning while she was still possibly alive.
0: And so we've covered the fate, however brutal and disheartening, of one of the two primary Nancys in our story, Nancy Jane Young. What about Nancy Clem? Following the crime, Clem was tried five times in total for the murders. The first trial resulted in a hung jury. In the second trial of Nancy Clem, future president and lawyer Benjamin Harrison acted as prosecutor, winning a conviction, which was a notable success for Harrison at the time. However, the verdict was overturned by the Indiana Supreme Court. In yet another trial, Benjamin Harrison prosecuted to win another conviction, only for the Indiana Supreme Court to overturn the results a second time. Soon after that, the case was dismissed. So what were the consequences of this, if any, for Clem? Here's
2: Jim. The problem is that now she's, she's got a stigma around her for the rest of her life. I mean, even when she died, you know, the, the New York Times still published something saying that, you know, that woman, that, that Clem woman, the one who was involved in this case, died. And so recognize recognized that she had to live with that for the rest of her. Her, her husband left her. Right. Um, and she had to live with the fact that people knew who she was. And so I'm sure it's pretty hard. And, you know, whatever money she's had, she had with her, you know, her rooming house and everything. But, yeah, I think it was fraud later on, some, some type of loan or, or money. Um, uh, I can't exactly remember what it was, but just, I think it was some type of fraud going on that she got late on later in her life and served a little time.
0: Yeah, but it makes it interesting to, to sort of um, think about maybe all of the other people that were involved when back when this murder was actually committed and people that we may not even know who could have just framed all of these people and benefited from them being slandered and just kind of off the table, maybe to benefit from their own schemes or just to not be uh, convicted of their criminal actions and getting money in a, in a legal
4: way.
1: I think one of the unsatisfying things about this case is, you know, you've got the, the horrible cases like with uh, Devil in the White City, with a book that was published on on Holmes and, and those serial uh, murders. Um, but with Nancy Clem, there's not really the same kind of resolution. And, you know, I think it was very frustrating for Benjamin Harrison as prosecutor and that um, it looked like twice he was able to get convictions which were later overturned. And so there, there isn't ever this sense of resolution. And as Donna said, you know, this remains an unsolved murder, a, an unsolved double murder. And it's clear that Nancy Klam was guilty of something. But to what extent and how much it related to these cases? And um, I think it's only grown more and more a sensational time, you know, certainly with Benjamin Harrison um, ascending to um, the office of the presidency, um, certainly bringing him to national attention. Um, and then just many of these very unresolved um, facts
2: connected with the case just make it all the more intriguing. And also, you know, William Abrams did serve some time for this, but then he was pardoned, which is really amazing. By the Indiana governor of all people. By the Indiana governor, William Blue Jeans, yeah, uh, whatever his la- I can't remember his last name. Blue uh, Jean Williams, yeah. his nickname, yeah. Um, but they pardoned him, so wow, what's going on there? And so this is why I think at some level. She was taking the fall for some very high-up people who were who were pushing some money around. And they, and they used her as the focal point. And they may even use her because they knew that she was doing something similar to what was going on. Because a friend of theirs, Dorsey, who um, Jacob had worked for, for a long time, all of a sudden comes on the scene and starts taking money back. He, he searched Jacob's house after the murder to get money and loans and things like that that Jacob had. He went to Nancy also later on and said... You know, don't don't uh, tell anybody. And you you take you, you do whatever you have to do right now and work on it. You don't say that anyone did this. But Dorsey somehow or other it was a more of a businessman than Jacob was in Nancy, I think. And somehow he was higher up. And there were, I think, connections all the way into other people in Indianapolis who had who could pull strings. And I think there this was a protective mechanism they they, they generated to keep themselves safe. Because why would you pardon someone of you know, who's been convicted of this crime, why would you pardon him? Makes no sense. It's
4: a very, very baffling, just when you go back and look at these, all these details that make it just so confusing. And you can see how the juries would have reacted the ways that they did during the trials. Um, So I think we could talk about this case probably all day and just go in completely different (laughs) avenues, um, talk about um, all the different personalities involved and how intricate these relationships were between them. (laughs) Uh, but I think for our purposes today, maybe we, we can leave a little bit of mystery and let the listener decide what they think And um, as to Nancy's innocence or guilt or uh, whether this was just some bigger conspiracy that none of them had any involvement with. So thank you both so much for well, joining
1: us. And so, so Molly, should, should we take away from this that it's probably still a hung jury today?
2: Yeah. Probably.
4: <laughs> I would say so. With all the circumstantial evidence and technical issues, it's just one of those things, I guess.
2: And it is interesting that the the actual transcripts for the trial are gone now. Someone took them from when well, they took them out to look at them, and they never returned them.
4: There's just there another thing for for <laughs> us, <laughs> and, you know, us to suspect in this case. So yeah. just pile it on. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Charlie, uh, Donna, and Jim, so much for your input and all of your knowledge um, and perspective on this. Um, and. We uh, look forward to uh, talking about more Six Degrees of Benjamin Harrison in the future. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank
2: (laughs) Thank you very much, Molly.
4: Decide
0: for yourself the case of Nancy Clem by attending a performance of Jim Traffeter's Not Guilty this summer at the Benjamin Harrison Presidential Site. For tickets, other events, and more from Candlelight Theater, find information on our website at presidentbenjaminharrison.org under the Visit tab. Thanks again to our guests for this episode. Donna Wang, Jim Trofeter, and Charlie Hyde, and we hope you rejoin us soon as we continue to share more six-degree connections and stories from the life and legacy of the 23rd president. New episodes found wherever you get your podcasts. The sound quality of this
4: podcast was brought to you by the Need to Record Remotely for Pandemic Safety.